All right, good morning. Good to see you guys. How is everybody this morning? Good, good. It's good to see you all. Uh, so in recent years, studies done in the social sciences, some studies done in the social sciences, have been called into question. These are studies done in the fields of psychology, sociology, and economics. And a lot of the focus has been on whether different studies are reproducible or not. Now, a few, a very small minority of professors have gotten caught making, making up results that confirm the hypothesis that they wanted to see confirmed as true. More often, it's issues with the sample size of the study or some way that the math was flawed. Now, this leads to problems because ultimately these studies are done so that practitioners can put them to use in helping people in our society in one way or another. Doing social science is hard. Many have pointed out that much of the problem with studies being done is actually that the subjects that are participating in the studies are weird. They are not representative of the rest of the population. And in this circumstance, weird is actually an acronym. Weird stands for Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Now, the reason that this happens is because much of the research done in social sciences is done on university campuses. And so if you're doing research on university campus, who can you do the research on but college students? And college students are nice because they are relatively easy to motivate. You provide them with maybe some extra credit on a course grade or free pizza or a small piece of financial motivation, and they will come and participate in your research. But college students don't represent the larger society. They're unique, and they definitely don't represent the world as a whole. They respond in ways that are unique to their own situation. Now, you may be asking, what does this, any of this have to do with me? And this is what it has to do. Christians in churches like this one, those of us sitting here today, we have to recognize our weirdness as well. We are Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. We often read the Bible through a very specific cultural lens. We can easily create theological positions that don't line up fully with what God has communicated. They line up with our own preconceived notions. The story of Jesus' death on the cross is particularly susceptible to our reading in a way that aligns with our cultural weirdness. It is a story that we are all familiar with. We have heard the story of the cross many, many times. So today, as we finish reading the final verses relating to us, the story of the cross, I believe that there are biblical truths that we often gloss over, which we would benefit from acknowledging 
more fully. Please turn with me to Luke chapter 23. We'll pick up in verse 44 and read through verse 56. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can turn to page 831. That's Luke chapter 23, beginning in verse 44. Hear the word of the Lord. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever yet been laid. It was the day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb, and how the body was laid. And then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. Western Christians understand Jesus' sacrifice on the cross in a very individualistic way. We focus on the implications of the cross for our own personal lives. There are many reasons for this. We are all products of the Enlightenment, thoroughly modern in our way of thinking. The revivalism that formed so much of how we think about Christianity was focused on individual decision-making. It is not that the cross doesn't impact me individually. It certainly does. Problems arise when I am so focused on what the cross means for me, I totally ignore what it does for we. The cross opens up the covenantal, covenantal promises God had made to all people. The cross is the starting point for a new community that is unlike any community that has ever existed in the world. In this community, the divisions of the world are wiped away through looking to Jesus Christ for salvation independently. We are drawn together corporately. On the cross, the family of God expands to include all who look to Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. 
In these verses, Jesus is presented as the ultimate Passover sacrifice. His death happens on Friday evening at the time Jewish families would be preparing the Passover feast together. This yearly sacred tradition had been instituted 1,500 years before by God through Moses. The historical details of the first Passover are recorded in the book of Exodus. The angel of the Lord spared the households that practiced the Passover in Egypt. Any that didn't experienced death. Later in Leviticus, the Passover is instituted as a yearly routine to remind the Jews of God's provision of salvation to the people. In all of the years of Jewish history, the Passover was one of the few expectations God had communicated that was practiced with any consistency. Through the ceremonial dinner, a variety of important truths about God were communicated. God's power was acknowledged. The people were supposed to fear the Lord. Families were supposed to remember how God had spared his people and led them out of the land of their slavery to the promised land. The sacrificial lamb was the center of the Passover meal. Other aspects of the meal communicated important truths, but the lamb was central. The Passover meal made clear that for people to be in relationship with God, atonement was necessary. Nobody was supposed to take part in this Passover meal alone. Jews understood atonement to be a corporate matter. Individual hope was rooted in being part of God's covenant family. Luke makes sure we know that Jesus is fulfilling the requirements that existed for the Passover lamb. He records the centurion praising God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. As a man, Jesus fulfilled the sacrificial requirements. The lamb for the Passover had to be physically without flaw. Jesus is spiritually flawless. While the fact of Jesus' innocence is not surprising, there are a couple of odd things going on here. The first is that the person recognizing Jesus' innocence is a Roman centurion. We're going to, let's put a pin in that for a second. We're going to come back to the fact the person making this claim, acknowledging this reality is a Roman centurion. The second odd thing is that this man praised God. He doesn't praise God because he has witnessed the execution of a righteous man. He saw what had taken place. The centurion praises God because on some level, 
like the second criminal on the cross who placed his faith in Jesus' kingdom, this guy knew what the death of Jesus meant for him. Matthew and Mark both record this centurion saying, surely Jesus was God's son. As God's innocent son, Jesus accomplishes in full what all the sacrificial lambs eaten at Passover could only point to. The sin which separates humanity from God's holiness has been dealt with on the cross. No further sacrifice is necessary. Jesus has accomplished for us what we could not do for ourselves. People could never maintain our side of the covenantal relationships God made with us. We always fell short. The nation of Israel was the primary example of this failure. In Jesus, God became man and accomplished what no man, tribe, or nation could. There were always indications this was the plan. Throughout the Old Testament, God's focus was on restoring the relationship sin ruined. When God provided Abraham with a ram to sacrifice in place of Isaac on the mountain, it was a clue of what was to come. Other narratives provided similar clues. Throughout the prophecies of the Old Testament, you can see a picture developing of what is in store. The separation between God and man was abolished by Christ through the promises that had been made to the Jewish family. But Judaism was inherently limited. It was tied to the call of one man, Abraham, who was the father of the nation of Israel. While people did convert at the time Jesus was alive, doing so was a challenge. To become Jewish was to walk away from your Greekness or Romanness. The temple curtain tearing in two that Luke reports is the physical manifestation of the new spiritual reality available to all people through what is happening on the cross. The curtains in the temple were the final impenetrable barrier between people and God himself. The removal of the curtains represented a new spiritual dynamic. Access to God's family is no longer limited to a few special people. Jesus' sacrificial death means the separation between God and man is no longer necessary. Any person who has been atoned for by the blood of Jesus, the final Passover lamb, can experience God's presence fully. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Even with his limited knowledge, this is what the centurion is praising God 
for. It is what we should continue to praise God for today. God had been working through the Old Testament to arrive at this point. The people of Israel were the vehicle that God used to accomplish his purposes. The first time God spoke to Abraham, he said to him, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show of you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In these verses, in Luke, the promise God had made to Abraham is being fulfilled. Jesus, as a son of Abraham, fulfills the requirements of the law by dying as the ultimate Passover lamb. In doing so, he makes it clear God's plan was never just about a people, the Jews. It was always about blessing all people. Jesus becomes flesh to carry through the promises God made to Abraham. He breaks down the barriers that divide people from God. This is familiar to us. A few minutes ago, I put a pen in how odd it was that the person saying, certainly this man was innocent, was a Roman centurion. Centurions were outsiders when it came to God's family. They were enemies of the Jews. The centurion, the centurions were not people that you would look to to determine what was going on in God's kingdom. But this centurion's claim fits with a theme that has been consistent throughout Luke's gospel. Those that have been viewed as outside God's family are held up as models of faith. This is not the first time this has happened. In Luke 7, Jesus heals a different centurion's servant due to his faith. The man with many demons in Luke 8 who responds in faith after Jesus heals him is not a Jew. And the leper that returns to thank Jesus after being healed is a Samaritan. Even those who just showed up in these verses to be entertained by Jesus' death are not excluded from God's family. Verse 48 tells us that all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. They leave beating their breasts in repentance. Nobody is excluded from what Jesus has accomplished based on their identity. However a person identifies is secondary. Joseph of Arimathea, who provided the tomb for Jesus, was a member of the council that had voted for Jesus' death. 
He was a powerful Jew. While he had not consented to the decision, he didn't keep it from happening either. Many would see Joseph as guilty by association. All that matters is how a person responds to Jesus. That is what determines our status in God's eyes. It doesn't matter whether a person is Jew or Greek, slave or free, rich or poor, American or Chinese. Jesus is the solution to the division that exists between God and man. In our Western individualism, we easily grab on to that truth. It is present in our cultural DNA. He is also the solution to the divisions that exist within humanity. When we find our identity in Christ, it changes the way we relate to each other. In these verses, you see the work of the cross restoring not just the way various people relate to God, but the beginnings of a new family God is creating that is bound together by their response to Jesus' sacrifice. The centurion and Joseph of Arimathea would have had nothing in common in normal circumstances. They would have been natural enemies. Their experience of Jesus changes that. If you were to create a pie chart representing the identities of Christians in the world today, the largest slice of that pie would be made up of impoverished women of color living in the Southern Hemisphere. Based on our worldly status, those women are incredibly foreign to us sitting here today. Through Jesus, they are our sisters in Christ. This doesn't mean Christians all become one amorphous blob of generic sameness. Jesus didn't come to create a clone army. He came that people of every tribe could be in relationship, praising God in every language that has ever been spoken. The community that comes about through Jesus Christ is a diverse community. This diversity speaks to God's goodness. The cross is for all people. Paul makes this clear in 1 Timothy 2.4 when he writes, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The testimony given at the proper time. When we don't experience God's desired diversity in his family as Christians, it is right to ask why. Now, it might be a simple matter of geography. For me, one of the biggest shortcomings of 
the North Shore, this geographic area that I've lived in since 2009, is the lack of good Mexican food. You just can't get good Mexican food on the North Shore. I guess you can go to Lynn, but that's just a whole hassle, right? And the reason for that is pretty obvious. Compared to Tennessee, where I'm from, there are less Hispanic people on the North Shore, and so there's less good Mexican food. When a lack of diversity is a product of geography, that is fine. Often, this is not the case, though. Christians ex often exist in echo chambers of sameness that has little to do with geography. These echo chambers are a product of cultural factors being the source of identity above a person's relationship with Jesus Christ. Any factor that perpetuates division among Christians is a denial of Jesus' primacy. This doesn't mean we agree on every single thing. I can still cheer against the patriots and you can still cheer for them. It means whatever cultural disagreements that occur among Christians are insignificant in comparison to our agreement on Jesus. Interacting with Christians that are different from us culturally is a great way to see what we have prioritized above Jesus. <clears throat> it is normal for us to not even be aware how much of who we are is a product not of the cross, but of our circumstances. Jesus has given us fellow believers to come to a greater knowledge of the places our identity has been formed by factors other than him. Christians the world over are a family that God has created through the lamb that was slain. We have all been passed over together. In this family, we see the unraveling of creation undone. The division that is a byproduct of diversity is a work of the devil. Jesus undoes that damage. We look forward to the day of completion of the family of God. A great multitude will cry out, as Revelation 19 describes. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and give him the glory. <clears throat> For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. In our weirdness, Western Christians easily see the personal implications of Jesus' death on the cross. We are incredibly individualistic. Don't get me wrong, the cross is certainly about our personal relationship with God. That is the starting point. 
The cross is also about overcoming the, divi- the divisions that divide people from one another. Through the cross, Jesus expanded the community of God's people from a single family in the Mediterranean basin to include people of every ethnicity. The good news of the cross is for all people. Through it, the family of God is created and atoned for. Let's pray. Dear Lord, there are so many possible sources of division, even in in this local expression of your family, Lord. There are so many opportunities for us to divide from each other over things that are secondary. Things that are secondary to what you have done for us on the cross, Lord. And then we zoom out from there and we see the divisions that exist in our nation and the divisions that exist in our world. And those divisions just multiply in an exponential way, Lord. I pray that you would bring us together in unity. That we would look to Jesus as our Savior and Lord and that all the other cultural attributes which we have a tendency to prioritize, that we would see that they are so clearly secondary to what Jesus has done for us, Lord, that you would bind us together as a diverse family, rejoicing in your name and calling others to join us in that rejoicing, Lord. I pray that you would work in this world of division. And that you would bring about unity through Jesus Christ, Lord. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's 